Hey guys, welcome back to Chronic Failure Podcast. This is your host, Brian Bostock. I hope you took time to listen to last week's episode. It was a current events episode. There's a a lot of good information uh, shared on that, albeit somewhat short. Two of those topics will ultimately become uh, longer length topics, probably uh, in the future, not exactly sure when, but, um, you know, as the events unfold in Ohio over the next, you know, months, uh, that'll make for a lot of good information to put into a full-length episode, as will the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. That's about all that I have uh, for announcements this week. Let's hop into this week's episode. Today's episode will be about the Panguna Mine and the history of resistance in Bougainville, Papua New Guinea. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and as always, thanks for listening. More than 137 million Americans are living in places with unhealthy levels of air pollution. The number of weather-related disasters has increased five-fold in the past 50 years. Tonight, amid record-breaking heat and explosive wildfire bringing devastation to Northern California. The Red Sea corals are under threat of toxic wastewater being dumped into the sea from an oil processing plant. Because there are these dangerous ancient microbes buried deep under the permanent frozen zone. Today we turn our attention to the southwestern Pacific Ocean, more specifically in a subregion of Oceania referred to as Melanesia. Melanesia comprises Fiji, Vanuatu, the Solomon Islands, and Papua New Guinea. We'll be spending some time in the autonomous region of Bougainville, which is comprised of several islands and atolls. It is actually the largest island in the Solomon Islands archipelago. If you were to fly over the Crown Prince range of Bougainville, you would be soaring above a lush, jade-green tropical rainforest. But amid this verdant expanse, you would see a gaping hole, opening skyward dotted with uncanny blue waters and looking like a poorly healed flesh wound. This said flesh wound is actually the defunct Panguna mine, and its story is also the catalyst for an era of violence in Bougainville. What's more, the environmental aftershocks of the mine's presence reverberate through life in Bougainville to this day. For today's episode, we will be relying heavily on a report put together by the Human Rights Law Center, published in March of 2020, and this was published on behalf of the people of Bougainville. We will also be relying on a lengthy interview of Theonila Rokomatbob, a Bougainville parliamentarian, by Beyond Mining, Protecting Land and Life. Between 1972 and 1989, Bougainville Copper Limited, a subsidiary of Anglo-Australian mining giant Rio Tinto, mined for copper and gold in the Panguna mine. For the purpose of this episode, I will be referring to the owner of the mine simply as Rio Tinto and the operator, Bougainville Copper Limited, as BCL. 
The operation of the Panguna mine in the area was essentially the catalyst for an environmental disaster and civil war. As I mentioned up at the top of this episode, Bougainville is the largest island in the autonomous region, which comprises a small collection of islands and atolls. In 2019, Bougainville's population voted quasi-unanimously in favor of independence from Papua New Guinea, with a 98% of the population favoring the separation. Bougainville is actually scheduled to gain full independence from Papua New Guinea in 2027, and this has been a long time coming. During the Australian occupation in 1930, gold was discovered on Bougainville, Soon after this, copper ore deposits were discovered in the Crown Prince range of the island in 1960. And by 1972, mining in these areas had begun. Between 1972 and 1989, Rio Tinto mined for copper and gold in the Panguna mine. At the time, this was the largest copper and gold mine in the world. The mine produced 12% of Papua New Guinea's GDP, and it also comprised over 45% of the country's export revenue. As you can imagine, it was of vital importance to the nation's economy. The presence and the operation of the Panguna mine catalyzed existing tensions on the island. Rio Tinto allegedly separated work facilities by race, dividing white, New Guinean, and local workers fomenting racial divide. The mine recruited thousands of workers from Papua New Guinea, as well as white workers, which were mostly from Australia. Bogovillians were opposed to this, as they had long-standing and established cultural differences with New Guineans, and this ultimately brewed resentment between the two groups. Profits generated by the mine were divided unfairly as well. 20% of profits were allotted to the Papua New Guinean government, and Bougainvillians received merely one-half to one-and-one-quarter percent shares. What was initially issues of indigenous identity morphed into the Bougainvillians' push for long-desired independence from Papua New Guinea. This long-standing desire for independence blended in the creation of a multi-layered situation from which a civil uprising took place, led by a man named Francis Ona, who would become the leader of the Bougainville Revolution Army, or BRA. Now, the BRA were secessionist armed forces which sought separation from Papua New Guinea. At this time, it is important to note that Bougainville's desire to separate from Papua New Guinea is intimately tied to the way Bougainvillians view their connection to the land. They did not appreciate Papua New Guinea giving foreign access to their soils. And Bougainvillians, being part of the Solomon Islands, are part of Melanesia. When Papua New Guinea became independent from Australia in 1975, its constitution incorporated little traditional land ownership practices, which are an anchor to Melanesian tradition. And this exacerbated the cultural divide between Bougainvillians and New Guineans. Theonilla Roca Matbob, 
a woman and Bougainvillian member of the House of Representatives, sums up Bougainvillians as such, quote, their sense of separateness, physical, cultural, and emotional, from Papua New Guinea had been fueled by their particular experience of this policy. The presence of the giant copper mine and the use of the wealth it generated to pay for the development of the young nation-state. Bougainvillians are a Melanesian matrilineal society. In other words, women are traditionally the custodians of the land. As noted by Theonila Roca Matbub, right now in Bougainville, we are publicly telling everyone the women own the land. They are the ones who will come up with the decisions. That would be Bougainville politics. But today, we are actually doing another type of politics, one that is foreign in Bougainville. Women are never given that space. Although I am a woman who owns land, I am challenged and criticized. When Rio Tinto came into Bougainville, it entertained the men. It fed them with ego. Now, the men, they step on the women's toes. They said, I'll deal with the mine. I can't blame the Bougainvillian men, but I can blame Rio Tinto for coming to Bougainville and not respecting Melanesian politics. In short, the climate of divide and foreign economic occupation created by Rio Tinto propelled the conflict and left a multi-layered legacy of turmoil. Now in 1989, a campaign of sabotage against the Panguna mine was initiated. And this consisted of a series of arson attacks, which took place with use of explosives that were stolen from the mine and destroyed massive power lines supporting the feeders along the road accessing the mine. What later followed was a decade-long civil war that ended in 2001. This civil war unfortunately claimed the lives of up to 20,000 people. Arawa, the town built nearest to the mine in order to accommodate the workforce, was completely razed during this civil war. Francis Ona summarized the situation as such, quote, Land to us is our lifeline, and we cannot be separated from it. We are generally peace-loving, law-abiding people. At present, we have been blamed for the lawlessness in the province. We have taken the move after painful struggle for the last 20 years of Papua New Guinean rule. We are fighting to save our land from foreign exploitation. Now, he also spoke of dubious environmental practices at the mine, listing hazardous chemicals used on the site. Now, of course, the company denied what he had to say about the hazardous chemicals used. He also went on to accuse the BCL of economic apartheid because the BCL was using a dual-wage structure that paid local employees less than foreign employees. As I touched upon in Francis Ona's quote, there were already concerns from the locals about the environmental effects of the mine's operation when the conflict began. Now let's take a look at how the mining process affected the island of Bougainville's natural systems. 
First off, the development of the open pit itself was aggressive. It entailed blowing up what seemed to be half a mountain, clearing 220 hectares of tropical rainforest and spraying the undergrowth with Agent Orange. Now, as we know from my Agent Orange episode, this is some nasty stuff. And if you haven't listened to that, go ahead and pause this and go back to that episode and you'll see what a disastrous chemical this is. As I mentioned previously, Bougainvillians have a deep connection to the land. In an interview with Beyond Mining, Protecting Land and Life, Theonilla Roca Matbub resumes this connection. Quote, Our spiritual connection to the land is just like when you look at a human person. A person is flesh and blood. We look at land and water like flesh and blood. We are inseparable. When I look at mining the land for myself as a woman who is directly connected to the land, it's like if I were to cut my own skin, remove my own flesh, and get my child to eat it. That's how important land is to the people. So, in short, one could imagine how the initial creation of the open pit would have affected Bougainvillians from the very beginning. Now, the Panguna Mine is located upstream of the Jaba Kawarong River Valley, which is home to 12,000 to 14,000 people. During the mining process, rock waste and tailings were discharged into the surrounding areas of the mine. The rock waste was built up into piles in large dumps or landfills, but the tailings were discharged directly into that Jaba Kawarong river system. Now, tailings are a byproduct of mining. The Society for Mining, Metallurgy, and Exploration actually describes tailings as such, quote, after ore containing an economically recoverable commodity is mined from the earth, that commodity is extracted in a processing plant or mill. After the commodity of value is extracted from the ore material, the resultant waste stream is termed tailings. Typically, mill tailings range from sand to silt clay in particle size. Now, SEM also points out that tailings facilities must be constructed in such a manner as to protect people, downstream property, and the environment. Unfortunately, that was not the case in this instance. Tailings were actually spread over 1,700 hectares on either side of the Jabba River, and this destroyed large areas of rainforest and decimated the local fish population. In September of 2020, the Human Rights Law Center filed a complaint on behalf of several Bougainville landowners. In doing so, a report of findings was compiled, and this report further highlighted some of the environmental legacies left by Panguna. Now, this compiled information is so well documented and detailed that it is ultimately the main channel of information 
for this episode. The first point that this filing makes is polluted rivers. So the report explains that the ongoing copper pollution has contaminated the entirety of the Jabba and Kelorong rivers, and they extend over 40 kilometers down to the coast. Now, the water that still flows out of the copper mine pit is bright, unnatural blue. And this is a red flag. Side note, it is very pretty looking. You know, the blue is, is very bright and vibrant, but it's not natural and it is pollution, which negates that odd beauty. So, copper is actually toxic to animals and plant life. It can also be toxic to humans in high concentrated levels as well. Now, unfortunately, because these rivers are so polluted, the communities along the rivers that rely on fish and aquatic life for sustenance are unable to survive as they once did. Bathing in the rivers was also once very common but now results in itchy, burning sensations on the skin. Clothing and other materials actually disintegrate rapidly if immersed in this river. And so, due to the lack of available local drinking water and bathing water, locals often still rely on the river despite its contamination. And... Children are actually noted as panning for gold in the river as there is an absence of other sources of income for this area. Now it's also said river crossings are very treacherous. Locals generally need to cross the river regularly to have access to schooling, supplies, gardens, etc. And this is very dangerous, particularly during the raining season. So, because it's so toxic, you really don't want to fall in. And the continuous movement of the tailing sands can actually create quicksand. So, whether you're falling into the contaminated water or what looks like wet sand could ultimately be quicksand. Unfortunately, with this, there are reports of people falling and drowning as they attempt these treacherous crossings. So there were bridges built during the time that the mine was in operation, but they're either gone now or have fallen into disrepair. Some communities have even been left completely cut off during the rainy seasons. In the areas towards the middle of the river, dubbed middle tailings, inhabitants have little to no access to potable water for drinking and sanitation, especially during dry seasons. Now, communities make use of rainwater tanks or they pipe in water from faraway mountain sources, but these sources often dry up during the dry season. When their water sources dry up, community members have to either buy water or travel long distances to obtain it, sometimes both. During the dry season, it is also noted that dust from the parched tailing mounds contaminates the few potable water sources that 
are available. Now further downstream, dubbed lower tailings, the situation is even more dire as there is no access to mountain springs. Down in this area, few are able to afford rainwater tanks and many inhabitants will dig shallow groundwater wells adjacent to nearby uncontaminated creeks. Now unfortunately, due to flooding, Inhabitants have reported that a lot of the uncontaminated creeks are slowly becoming contaminated, causing further scarcity in terms of clean water. As I just mentioned, flooding is an issue, but lack of access to land and sacred sites is also an issue. The HRLC report sums up the effect of flooding in the river valley quite neatly, stating, quote, The chemical contamination of the rivers is compounded by ongoing erosion from the vast mounds of tailing waste dumped by the company into the Java River Valley. With each heavy rainfall, huge volumes of tailing sand are washed into the rivers, flooding large tracts of land downstream with polluted mud. Now in 2017, sediment buildup caused the Kewarong River to flood and change course, which ultimately impacted the lower tailings area. In January of 2019, large forest and wetland areas were reported to have been destroyed by a tailings sludge. So this area was previously used for farming, which means that the loss of arable land is a consequence of the Panguna mine even to this day. And this area was also the site used for a collection of raw materials such as sago palm used for house construction. Now it's also reported that flooding has destroyed many sacred sites. Two sacred sites belonging to the Mametanga clan and one sacred site belonging to the Barapang clan. Now the HLRC report cites that, quote, These are sites which the clans believe house the spirits of their ancestors and which were previously used for important rituals. So this is highly significant and also echoes an important effect often overlooked in the quantification of environmental disasters. And that's the loss of sacred sites for the clans represents a fraying connection with land and creates lots of distress for the community. Now additionally, flooding has altered and eroded land causing tensions between the local land owners. Now I did mention earlier enclosures must be built in order to contain tailings during mining operations. While that did happen in this instant, locals report that levees built to enclose tailings have either collapsed or are in the process of collapsing. And this would further endanger communities downstream. And it would be villagers in particular which would be at the highest risks during the rainy season. Food shortages are also a common issue. 
The loss of arable land, as I mentioned earlier, translates as an inability to undertake substance farming. And also that loss of fish due to the pollution of the rivers also contributes to a lack of food security. Now locals report that the quantity and quality of the food that they're able to produce has deteriorated, citing the chemicals leaching from the mine as the reason. Now, aside from the effects that the humans are seeing, there is also a loss of biodiversity. Papua New Guinea is a major tropical wilderness area, and it contains 5% of the world's biodiversity in less than 1% of the world's total land area. Unfortunately, due to human disturbances, animals endemic to Bougainville, like the monkey-faced flying fox, have been greatly endangered. In fact, the last documented sighting of these bats was the spotting of six individual bats in 1995. And the species is actually on the International Union for Conservation of Nature's red list as an endangered species. As of 2013, Bat Conservation International listed this species as one of 35 priority species worldwide for conservation. Now let's go ahead and turn our focus to the human health effects related to this mine. So residents of the River Valley describe their overall health as poor. And here is a rundown of some of the noted health effects attributed to the Panguna Mine's toxic legacy. So the first one is skin disease. Irritation and itching after spending time in the river and water is very commonplace, as are skin sores on the feet after being immersed in river water. Now the second issue is respiratory problems and chest infections. Now these are mostly reported in children inhaling dust from parched tailing mounds. Gastrointestinal problems are also commonplace and this brings diarrhea and vomiting. So this problem is actually compounded with the fact that water is very scarce. So if these locals are experiencing diarrhea and vomiting, they're also going to be experiencing dehydration, which can be disastrous with that lack of water. It has also been shown that pregnancy complications have become more commonplace as well. Symptoms related to this are vaginal bleeding during pregnancy, miscarriages, difficulty bringing pregnancies to term, and it's actually shown that the maternal mortality rate in Bougainville is estimated to be up to three and a half times higher than in Papua New Guinea, which is actually already among the worst in the world with around 230 deaths per 100,000 live births. 
Now, the last major health effect is the increased instances of malaria. Now, the tailings mounds cause backups in the river systems. Now, of course, a backed up river system is going to overflow, and this causes swamplands and stagnant water to form. Unfortunately, it's this stagnant water that becomes a breeding ground for mosquitoes and mosquitoes that spread malaria in particular. Now, at the end of the day, the report wraps up by stating that at their worst, the mine's impacts are a human rights violation, citing the right to life, right to health, right to water, and right to food, housing, and adequate standard of living as being undermined by the mine's toxic legacy. Where things stand today are a little bit different than they have been in the past. The Panguna mine was once dubbed the biggest jewel in Rio Tinto's crown. But following the Civil War, the mine was unceremoniously abandoned by Rio Tinto. The way the Human Rights Law Center sees it, Rio Tinto must return to the island for reparations and reconciliation. And for a period of time, Rio Tinto actually pondered reopening the mine. In relation to Rio Tinto taking responsibility, Theonila Matbob expressed in an interview with The Guardian in 2020, quote, We urgently need Rio Tinto to come back and deal with these problems so our communities can find healing. She also echoed a sentiment left by many on the island during an interview with the Beyond Mining Project, stating that she was not comfortable talking about any type of redevelopment of the mine without first addressing the current legacy left by Rio Tinto. Now, in 2016, Rio Tinto divested its principal interest in the mine to the Papua New Guinea government and new autonomous Bougainvillean government. It cited the, quote, extremely challenging security situation as one of the reasons for the share transfer. Many of the locals actually see this as a cut-and-run situation. Former president of the autonomous region of Bougainville, John Momis, famously said that Rio Tinto's decision was, quote, remarkably unprincipled, shameful, and evil, which I would have to agree with. Recently, the political conversation has been about whether or not to reopen the mine. Luckily, in 2015, new mining laws were put into place in the region. Now, these laws acknowledge indigenous ownership of mineral resources located on customary land and landowners' participation in major decisions about the land's exploitation. Now, this is a shift from how operations were during Rio Tinto's tenure. 
as one of the main complaints of local communities was the lack of inclusion. Some people, like Momus, actually think that reopening the mine would be a surefire way to bankroll nationhood. Others, like Theonila Matbob, support the idea of alternatives. She believes that communities should be able to generate their own income through farming and fishing once the land has been rehabilitated. She suggests that the government should invest in building transport infrastructures that would allow villagers to move their produce and fish to market sales. She's also encouraging communities to build village treasuries in order to support themselves. It's interesting to see the two sort of opinions on where they should go from here, where you know, Theonila Matbob is essentially saying, you know, it is what it is. Communities need to farm and fish once the land is rehabilitated. But she doesn't seem to take into consideration that the land isn't going to be rehabilitated any time soon. So what are they to do for the time being? The land is completely decimated. Where Momus thinks that reopening the mine would do good. While I do think that if the government is not going to step in and help rehabilitate the land, reopening the mine, now that locals have that authority and it's on them to do it, that would create the finances that locals need to ultimately clean up the area on their own. Maybe once that is accomplished, Theonilla's ideas for alternatives could take place. Essentially, it would go back to normal where the locals are farming and fishing to support themselves. I think it's going to have to be a little bit of both if no one is going to step in for the locals and help them clean up the area or help them survive economically. As of May of 2020, the autonomous region of Bougainville government led by current president Ishmael Taroma has reached an agreement with local landowners and the mine is on course to reopen. The idea presented here is that the mine's profits could bankroll the Bougainville's independence. The mine is estimated to still harbor up to 5.3 million tons of copper and 19.3 million ounces of gold. Now, critics say in order for this to happen, foreign investment will be required due to the burgeoning nation not being able to absorb the costs of operation. Unfortunately, the costs to just reconstruct and reopen the mine are estimated to be 5 to $6 billion. It should be noted that handling the current state of the mine, which was never actually decommissioned, should be the first step, a sentiment echoed by many like Theonila Motbob. Gavin Mudd, 
Associate Professor of Environmental Engineering at Australia's Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, stated in a 2022 article by Catherine Wilson for Al Jazeera that addressing unresolved issues regarding the mine's past, like environmental damage and fair compensation, are critical. In any future operations, he continues, would have to include modern waste disposal methods. These methods include a proper tailings dam, as I mentioned earlier, in order to store wastewater and mining byproducts so that these don't leach out into the land and water. Either way, it's going to be a long time before the mine starts functioning again, if it ever does. Estimates suggest that it could take up to 10 years before the first gold nugget is extracted. Until then, local inhabitants live and roam the abandoned pit, panning for gold in the surreal blue waters left behind by Rio Tinto. So, like I said in the beginning, this is a multi-layered legacy left by the Panguna mine. Within this issue, we see how differences in ideologies are at play. How colonial interference created a perfect storm for violence and engendered an environmental disaster that has yet to fully be remediated. In many ways, reopening the mine under the guise of bankrolling independence sounds like an attractive proposal especially since this time around, indigenous inclusion is part of the process. However, many believe that true independence lies in shedding any and all foreign investment in reclaiming the land and creating an economy that is local and intimately tied to restoring the land. As articulated in the HRLC's report, quote, Land, both the practice of caring for the land and using it, are central to Bougainvillian culture. Land, as Bougainvillians clearly articulated in the opposition to the mine from its onset, is at the heart of our very existence. Unfortunately, this week's episode is another one where we see indigenous locals being struck down for profits that don't go to them. I hope there was something for you to take away in this episode. I just want to give a quick thanks to my researcher and writer, Chloe Kibbe. And I'd like to tell you about next week's episode. The Sydney Tar Ponds is the name given to a hazardous waste site located in Sydney on the Cape Breton Island in Nova Scotia, Canada. At the beginning of the 20th century, the Sydney Steel Corporation dumped hazardous waste into the Coke Oven Brook. This would go on for another 100 years. I hope you'll join me again next week, and as always, thank you for listening.